Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hilary Milnes, and joining us today is Scott Tannen, the CEO and founder of Bolin Branch. Hi, Scott. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, so we are at the end of the year, it's December, and we are hoping to focus our next few episodes of the Glossy Podcast around a type of year in review and year in preview, um, look ahead and look back on, on 2017 and 2018. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on your company, Bull and & Branch, and just a quick recap of what you guys have achieved this year. Any big milestones? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're a startup and you say that you've survived your fourth year in business, that's that's a pretty big milestone in in, in itself. Um, for us, we we launched the business in in 2014, and for those of your listeners that don't know, um, Bolin Branch is the only luxury home brand that uh, creates all of its goods um, ethically and sustainably from the ground up. So, what makes us unique is the fact that that we've built and and kind of oversee our own supply chain to ensure that everybody um, who comes in contact with the product product from the the cotton farmer um, through the factory worker and of course the customer is 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 all treated you know equally equally with dignity and respect um, but of course uh, if we didn't make outstanding products I don't think we would we would have been able to to grow like we have so um, in uh, in 2017 as I mentioned our fourth year in business um, unlike a lot of startups or, or fast-growing companies um, we we don't stop looking at sustainability when it comes to our supply chain. We look at that in every aspect of our business. So um, while we're still growing 50 to 75% year over year um, this past year, um, we are profitable um, and not just like a dollar profitable. We actually are a real business that actually makes real money. Um, and, and we have, uh, you know, it, it's weird that, that that's something that makes us unique. But, um, you know, 2000. 2017, as I think it, it's been for for most retailers, has been an extraordinary year. Um, there's there's no doubt about the fact that um, you know people are are continuing to uh, gravitate towards digitally native brands, and and you know the the fear that that may have been associated with buying something from a small standalone brand online that existed in the past just continues to fade away. Um, especially with demographic segments that aren't early adopters and millennials and things like that. So, you know, we, one of the things that makes our business interesting is on any given day, we sell at least three units of product to every single state in the country. Um, and, and so, you know, we're not just focused on, um, you know, urban millennials and things like that. Not that that's not a big part of our, our audience, but, um, we appeal just as much to someone that lives in North Dakota as, as lives in Dumbo. Um, and uh, and I think that's why we've been able to grow so so you know quickly and and sustainably. So so you definitely brought up a lot of um, interesting points that I want to touch on because we've had a f- uh, several um, direct to consumer vertically integrated brands on the show before, and something that keeps coming up is just this idea of profitability. I like what you said, like that shouldn't make you unique, but a lot of these new brands uh, have a hard time reaching that point. Um, because they they raise so much venture capital and it holds them to these higher standards and it's it's really hard to get over that that first 
bump of like, you know, $10 million in, in sales or revenue. Uh, so how did you guys approach that? Like, what do you think that the, that you guys did differently that you didn't see other brands doing in the space in order to actually become profitable? If you had to sort of give a, a few guidelines that, that you would say your brand followed. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I think in the history of the world, um, certainly in the last 50 years, I can't, I can't think of a single brand um, that has actually bought a market. If you really think about it, right? There are plenty of brands that raise tons of venture capital. Um, and while many people will blame their failure on, on a lack of, of, of capital, generally the failure is is something else or something else with proposition. So um, you know, the more money you have, the, the sloppier you can be as a company. Um, this isn't my first startup. Um, you know, so so I've I've been through the process uh, a few times of growth, and and what I've realized is that you're never buying your your your, your sales if you want to be in this game for for a long time. If you want to create a business where your intent is to uh, to maximize your valuation, um, then you're playing a very different game, and you're gonna you're you're playing a competition of how many more sales can I purchase than somebody else, um, and you're relying on other sources of revenue. Or, or other sources of capital, um, because your revenue is not actually providing the capital that you need to grow. So I look at that as it's a very unsustainable model, right? It's it's all about momentum, and and for every company that um, is able to sell in their first four or five years, or or IPO, or, or whatever they happen to do, um, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of others that aren't those magic beans, and it just doesn't happen. Right. Um, so so from the start, to me, I, I think that that we focused on earning our sales and and we advertise we advertise a ton but we are profitable on every single dollar we spend and we have to be um, because i i expect our cash flow to fuel our growth and and that keeps our growth maybe a little bit more slowly we're we're a 50 60 million dollar business not a 200 million dollar business um but you know i i feel pretty good that i don't need any capital from anybody to to continue to achieve our aspirations Right. I think what you mentioned about just the sloppiness, um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like what sloppy moves are these brands taking once they've raised too much capital that this capital allows them to do? Well, it could it could be anything from um, installing a slide in your office um, to, you know, continuing to invest in different growth channels, whether it's marketing or advertising um, or over hiring or anything like that without really measuring and being able to isolate the return um and said really simply um if if your primary focus is the number on the top line um then you're immediately looking at the channels that can drive that number up the hardest and fastest and and most explosively um what you often find is that the cost of that revenue, right? I can I can advertise in, let's say I was going to advertise in a billboard in Times Square, and I'm making this up as an example. Mm-hmm. That might be very expensive, and it might be able to generate me a million customers overnight. But the value long-term of those customers is so much lower than anybody else that all I'm doing is buying one-time revenue. I'm not buying long-term affinity. So the next time I want to acquire those customers, I might have to spend even more to acquire them. Or you might look at other channels that are bringing you customers that are 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 more of a, 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 a target fit and, and a more natural fit with your brand proposition that you acquire once and they stay with you for a long period of time and they become your advocates. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the success of any business is going to be 
when you can reduce the percent of your revenue that goes into marketing, because that's what ultimately generates your profitability. Right. So the way you're going to do that is you have to, it doesn't mean you need to market less. It means more of the marketing has to become free, which means you need more advocacy. You need people that love you, that, that believe what you believe. Um, and they, they carry that word on. When you're constantly buying your revenue, if you're in year four, year five, and you're still putting 35, 40% of your revenue into your advertising, you know it's unsustainable. And you know there's really not a, the only way you're going to make money is if you make your product cheaper, um, you know, then. Uh, versus versus actually seeing that you have true sustainable business momentum. Right. And do you think that this year it was kind of a turning point for this idea that maybe these apparel consumer startups shouldn't be treated by venture capitalists the way that they have been um, thinking that they're going to get these huge returns? I think the what happened this year with both um, Bonobos and, and Nasty Gal over the, you know, the year before as well, uh, kind of proved that you might have the most buzz and people know about you, but that doesn't mean that the company is going to have the grand exit that, that you might expect. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's really interesting, right? Because you have to ultimately go all the way back and look at the founders and say, what game were they playing? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in many cases, and I don't know, you know, specifically with the examples that, that you've given, but I can think of a whole bunch of other um, startups that, that have been, spectacular business failures um and then hearing about the founders and the boats that they've bought and and their personal wealth that they've created by taking money off the table earlier so so you have a situation in many cases where you have all this momentum the founders have been able to you know what they would have called at the time de-risking the reality is is that they've been able to sort of financially benefit and it was actually the short-sightedness of the investors um, that ended up hurting the investors because they shouldn't have invested in these businesses that didn't actually have real business models. And of course, the employees is who really suffers. Those are the ones that are left with having worked at this shooting star of a brand that now is a stain on their resume because you know it becomes known as something that just wasn't really run very well. Um, and I think that so so, but but I still think it's extremely frothy. I see um, businesses funded all the time that that you really have to have to take a step back and say, what's, what's the end game there? Where, where does that really kind of turn around? Um, whether it's in my category or in other categories and, and, um, you know, plenty, I I think still you're, you're at a point where more ideas are being funded than probably should, because there is a lot of money sitting out there. I mean, you know, whether, whether that money would otherwise be investing in cryptocurrency or a startup, it's, it's all, everybody's looking for, for magic beans. Right. And so you don't think that the investors have really wisened up yet? Um, I personally, I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think that at the point that the investor base wisens up, um, you're going to see a massive correction. Um, there are too many brands doing too many things that I've tested on various different businesses, whether it's my own portfolio companies as an investor or our business Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's like you see, you know, ads in certain places and you say, I know nobody makes money on that. Absolutely. Nobody makes money on that. Um, and yet every week you see more new brands showing up in those same places. It's like lemmings following each other off a cliff. Where, and are, those, gener- yeah. Where are those places? I mean, I'll use out-of-home advertising as an example. Out-of-home yeah. advertising is one of the most difficult things to breed sustainability because you have a very, very small amount of time to deliver a message, right? So when I think about most emerging brands, right, they're, they're really direct response brands. Your mm-hmm. goal is to 
put an idea in someone's head and then you have to you have to actually motivate them to sort of come to your store so to speak and and engage um when i think of out of home advertising i think it's a phenomenal fit for coca-cola i think it's a phenomenal fit for a chewing gum brand that wants you to have that high top of mind recall uh when you get to the checkout outline um do i think it's sustainably sustainably can breed you know loyalty among you know expensive fashion products i'm not sure um Mm -hmm. i've just never really seen it work long term and that's not to say that it doesn't i mean i'm sure you know i'm sure people have have been successful but it it feels like something that's accomplishing a a um you know, it's, it's like one of those things that some investor, oh, one of my portfolio companies did this. Now, all you seven portfolio companies, you should do this. And the question they should ask that investor is, you ever actually run a company? Um, you know. Right. It's, I think what comes to mind immediately for in that vein is, is the Subway wrap ads. You've seen a lot of uh, digitally native, vertically integrated brands like from Thinks to Casper, these massive ads on the subway. Uh, and, you know, and, and in terms of thinking like, okay, like if one brand does it, it seems like every other brand is like, oh, okay, we, we have to do that too. Uh, so I think, do you th- like, do you think that that's going to be like, are, are these brands learning more about how best to, to reach their customers? Like what's going to change there? Again, it depends on your objective. If your objective, if you've said to the marketplace, we are going to be X dollars in revenue next year Mm -hmm. and your end game because you've taken so much venture capital, right? The more money you've taken in, the the fewer financial options you ultimately have. So um, as soon as you bring on some investors and you you raise money at some huge multiple, well, now you've got to give them a two, three, four multiple on their return, which Mm -hmm. means you need to goose up your revenue as high as possible and then get some sucker to buy your company for a multiple on that overinflated purchase revenue, right? Like that's the game. Um, So what happens is, is somebody might say, well, from that subway ad, I'm generating $40 million in revenue. Well, the cost of that $40 million in revenue is $39 million, which means you're losing money on it. But then you get to the point where you can't afford to walk away from that much revenue, even though it's not profitable Mm -hmm. because you have no way to replace it. And so when you start down this, this, this path of sort of, um, you know, spray and pray, so to speak, um, it becomes very difficult to get off of it because if you're, if you're backed by venture capitalists and you're as a founder worried, am I going to keep my job? Am I going to be able to, you know, keep my team and and do all of those things? You say, can, am I brave enough? to sit down with my board and tell them, look, we've been growing in an unsustainable way. We are going to need more and more capital. And at some point, no one's going to be able to give us the capital. So what we actually need to do is stop doing stupid stuff. And our revenue is going to drop back. But guess what? We're going to make money. I mean, what would you rather have? A $100 million business that loses $10 million or a $10 million business that makes a million? Right. Yeah, I think that so for you guys, um, when you're looking at, at all at this landscape, and like you said, this isn't it's not your first rodeo, so I'm sure you learned a lot yeah. with your other companies. But uh, what does work work for you guys in terms of the marketing and the and the money that you're spending there? Because you know we hear from from brand marketers all the time that the hardest part of their job is is figuring out attribution and, and just knowing what what's actually working and where they yeah. should keep investing their money. So what what works for you? You know the it's still um, incredible how effective 
and not scalable one-to-one marketing really is. At the end of the day, we spend a lot of time and we've, we've done it um, locally in our market and our communities and, and other, you know, similar communities around the country where, you know, there's nothing more powerful than me driving or somebody on my team driving and putting a pillowcase in someone's mailbox with a, with a car that says, try this out, yeah. see if, <laughs> if you like it. Um, really, really hard to do that to 300 million people in this country. Um, so, so I think like anything, it's always about striking the right balance of, of reach and then trying to understand how you can deliver your message in a, in a way that's, that's ownable and differentiated and compelling. Um, uh, but I think that, I think more than anything, people forget how important the product is from a marketing standpoint. And, and I, I, I like to think about, um, I don't know if, I don't know who told me this, but, but, but a long time ago, someone said, you know, marketing can fix a lot of things in a business, but it can't fix a pricing issue. It mm-hmm. can't fix a product issue and it can't fix like a, a packaging, you know, issue. Um, and packaging obviously is not applicable for a, a digitally native brand to, to a full extent. But, um, at the end of the day, the value you're going to get out of your marketing is how well your product does at actually exceeding the expectations of the customer. And when you're advertising, you're in the business of trying to build the expectation. So what becomes very challenging, I think, for us and for everybody else is how you build the expectation to an appropriate level, but Mm -hmm. still allow your product to exceed it. Because once the product exceeds it, that's where all of the word of mouth, all the affinity, all the referral uh, comes into play. And that's been enormous for us. Word of mouth is so far and away our number one marketing channel. Um, And we advertise on podcasts. We advertise at the radio. We advertise on TV. we, We do direct mail. We do catalogs. But all of that is about feeding affinity um, and trying to build love and 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 a deep emotional connection with the customer, um, you know. But but not trying to shoot, you know, so massively huge um, in terms of like creating an unrealistic expectation. Right, because like you said, you have to keep buying those customers the more massive you want to go. Absolutely. Uh, so, and you guys, I know, obviously, have um, that that sustainability, ethically made angle, which. Um, you know, we're, we're told all the time that that millennials love people love today, they want to attach themselves to a brand that that they feel good about. Um, so so that's, it's a it's a great trend in the market right now, as well as being um, a, a vertically integrated brand. Um, but but I think what we're what I've been finding that's interesting is that a lot of these brands um, that are new age, super modern are kind of realizing that in a lot of ways, the traditional pillars of retail aren't as dead as as we were told that they were uh, a few years ago, like physical retail and even, um, you know, third party partners, the the middlemen. Uh, so so I, you guys opened a store this year. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and is that something that you had planned on doing from the from the beginning or was that kind of a surprising move? Um, it's something we've actually been been we had been working on um, and thinking about for, yeah, I mean, from the time we were, once you got through that, you know, first six months phase and said, okay, are we going to actually lose our house and not have a business here? Or is this going to be something that like, that is going to kind of work? And, and, and so once we, once Missy and I started to get out of that phase and said, okay, this is actually a business, um, it, it immediately became part of the plan. Because one of the things that especially about the growth we've had, but, but try to understand what are the reasons somebody wouldn't buy our product. Um, especially when you have a product, 
as we do and 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 I try to be as objective as possible when I say this but our product's exceptional at any price point it really is it's a it's an outstanding product mm-hmm. um, so when I that. think about what what no but I mean and, but honestly it's true I mean I have a focus group data uh, I'll show you but um, but no in, in, in reality like what are the reasons someone wouldn't buy my product and I know that the reason they wouldn't buy their product is that they already have a product that's more satisfying I don't actually believe that's the case so um, so the second point to me was, well, people want to touch and feel their bedding. Um, and that's the one thing we can offer a free return rate, but that's kind of an inconvenient way to, to simply try. Um, even though more and more people are being coming comfortable with it. So for us and, you know, our, our thought on a retail model, this isn't sort of like, you know, a gratuitous monument to ourselves, which I think some, some brands can, can end up doing with their retail model. We, we tried to make an experience that, um, sort of highlighted the different aspects of exceptionalism in the business. So let's open the package, you know, and that was our strategy was how do we create an environment where we're opening the package? We want people to feel what the product feels like after it's been washed 20 times, like simulate a year of use, show people the manufacturing process, show them what's so different about the way we manufacture versus everybody else in our category. Make sure that everybody that walks into the store leaves feeling that they learned something and also feeling and understanding that every other product of our type that was sold in the same shopping mall um, was inferior at any price point. And, and I think, so, so that's always been a goal of ours. And then I think the reality is the, you know, you have to, nobody builds a strategy to say, I want to open a store because when you're doing a, you know, 50, 60, $75 million online business and you look at a retail store and say, wow, this is great. It can, it can generate, you know, a couple million dollars a year out of this one store. Um, but then you look at the relative cost of operating a store. It's not a massive moneymaker as an individual. You've got to start thinking about it as like, okay, what does this look like as 15 stores, as 20 stores? Um, so we wanted to build a concept that we thought was scalable, um, you know, and, and, and rapidly scalable, but also use this as sort of a test kitchen. Um, because fortunately the mall at Hills is about a mile and a half from our office. So, mm-hmm. um, so we, we've, we've completely reset the store now three times. We've learned a lot from customers and now we're seeing like unbelievable performance. And, and what's been amazing to us is 75% of the people that walk in the door are already aware of the brand. Um, and so our thesis was correct is, is that you know feeling the product was that last step in the decision making process to um, to finally deciding to make the leap and, and and try us? So it's been it's been fantastic, right? And and that's interesting because when you think about okay, you need to solve this problem that people want to try something that before they buy it, there's the other way other than opening a store to do that is make returns free and and make shipping free and or give people a chance to try that out. Do you think that the store gives more? like re- return on investment than these online capabilities that would would free people of any um you know hesitation that they have of, of shopping online I, I think it certainly can I, I think it's remember the retail shopper is certainly more passive the the act of shopping became more active right so mm-hmm. it's kind of like you know if, if somebody starts searching on the internet um for sheets, they're already demonstrating their interest in the category. But if somebody's riding a subway, um, they're not demonstrating any sort of interest in the category. So, right. um, so in this case, they're going to the mall and they're saying, "I'm interested in shopping in general." Um, but, but you still have that very passive walker by. Most people did not walk into the mall. In our case of, of saying, I'm going to go to the mall and buy some sheets. Um, if they did that, they probably would have just gone to Bloomingdale's or Restoration Hardware or one of the, the major retailers that were, were there anyway. So mm-hmm. our goal is to try to catch them 
um, on their way to to one of those other retailers, number one, or number two, to suddenly pop out because they've heard about us or seen us in other places and say, oh, wow, I want to see what all the hype is about. I want to see what people are talking about. Um, and and I think that that digitally native brands, they're, we're all competing with each other, right? I'm not actually competing with any other betting brands. From from a sales standpoint, I'm competing with Bloomingdale's and people like that, right? <laughs> um, but from a media standpoint, I'm competing against every other e-commerce brand because all we're doing is driving up each other's cost per acquisition because we're flooding the marketplace with more inventory. Right. So you reach a point where you say, if you're responsible, you reach a point where you say, it's starting to get too expensive for me to scale beyond X or Y um, in digital. Um, so now I got to look at TV or I got to look at out of home or whatever it happens to be. Um, I think retail becomes another channel that people look at and say, wow, I can actually start getting an efficient cost per acquisition in this channel because there isn't another digitally native fashion brand that's here or whatever, you know, and, and in, in, in our case, um, you know, that that's, that's proven true. Um, but it's also, it's, it's challenging. It's a hard business. Retail's tough, way tougher than digital. (laughs) E-commerce is so much easier than, than retail. I like, I just like every day I talk to my retail folks. I'm like, uh, you, the, the, so many of them have, have spent their careers in it. And I'm like, you have no idea how much I admire you guys and how hard this is. Like, we went the way easier route off the bat to start online. Yeah, that's so it, obviously I think we're all, but yeah, as difficult as it is, uh, it seems like a lot of these digitally native brands are are looking to the store as, um, you know, it's, it's obviously not... Uh, you know, physical retail isn't dead. People are still shopping in stores, but it doesn't sound like you guys are too keen on working with the retailers, like like a Bloomingdale's or or the the third party um, partners, like a, like the middlemen. So, is that something that you you want to keep it all owned sales, direct direct sales? Yeah, I'll be honest; it's not really a huge part of our consideration set at the moment. Um, you know, it, again, what what's our goal? Is our goal to build a business and to build a brand, or is it to chase revenue? You know, um, mm-hmm. because I don't have a ticking time clock of investors that are saying you have to, you have to offer me liquidity now. You're, you're down to three years left. You have to offer me liquidity. Like going to one of those retailers, um, you know, with the basic terms that they offer, it, it's. Uh, I mean, we have really good margins, and I can I can tell you that that even for us it would be challenging, mm-hmm. and um, and so you start looking at like, what is really the objective? Is the objective just money? Um, Cause if the objective is just money, that's not a great reason to do anything. Um, Even but, for a business. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, because I think money comes and goes, right. um, you know, money is uh, looking at, 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 at money. And, and in that regard, it's just very short term focus, right? Like you're staring two feet in front of your face. Um, and, and I think, I, I think that there's, if you see a long-term opportunity, um, it just depends on your category, you know, but, but those, those businesses are not exactly thriving right now. And and they're not thriving because they're like the grocery store and, and, and brands like Bull and Branch are the, we're the corner butcher, right? Mm -hmm. We, we, we are the specialty retailer. Our staff knows our product, whether it's when you call our customer experience team on the phone or you walk into one of our stores, these folks really know our product. They know betting. They know the category um, at a much deeper level than than someone would say, you know, know about produce at the grocery store, right? Or know about meat at the grocery store. So um, I think what you're seeing is is this res- this surge of of small brands um, 
it provides much more value to the customer at the end of the day than a department store does. So um, I could I could go do business with a department store and and you know it might just be a financially motivated thing in the short term, but it's it's kind of like you know it just feels like like walking backwards a little bit. Right, because you're you're taking this brand that you've built very purposely purposefully and subjected it to this area of retail that yeah we all know is is struggling unless you're amazon (laughs) yeah exactly they seem to be doing okay yeah um so we're almost out of time but i you know i'd love to just get a few final thoughts on uh from you for for 2018 uh what do you think is going to to happen in the direct-to-consumer brand space next year uh it kind of does feel like we're hitting this point of of maturation and so brands and investors as well need to go about the space a little bit differently in order to actually be successful. I think we're all going to stop selling products and start mining bitcoins instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but no, in, in, in seriousness, I mean, I think that that 2018, I think, is going to be a really interesting year. Um, if you look over the last three years at how many digitally native consumer goods brands have, have popped up, um, you know, I, when you look at how they're funded, they're they're funded um as if there's an assumption that the market is going to become you know there's going to become more dollar shaped clubs right billion dollar vertically integrated brands so to speak um i think what we're going to start to see is a shift where the reality is is that it's not going to be in a segment of a new billion dollar brand it's going to be 10 hundred million dollar brands um in Mm -hmm. segments and i think the investor community is going to start to wake up and realize and, and to say we've probably funded in the past companies to an unrealistic expectation so those companies have to either be unwound broken up sold um you know put out of their misery whatever it happens to be and 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 the the funding is going to become a lot more aligned to the fact that okay you're you're funding a new apparel business and you know you need them to be profitable and by the way at best case they're going to get two times revenue when they sell 10 years from now so everybody's expectations i think are going to start to come in line because you're also going to start seeing, I mean, I, I joke about cryptocurrency, but if you're looking for highly volatile, highly speculative investments, um, startups may no longer be the only ones that can provide that high rate of return as a hedge against other people's conservative portfolios. So um, that's that's kind of an interesting notion where startups are going to start having to compete with other investment vehicles for capital right. um, to a greater extent than they have in the past. Right. Yeah, I, th- I definitely think it's it's about time for for the man uh, the expectations to be set in line again. <laughs> yeah, the um, bubble. Right. Exactly. Here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> it's bursting. Um, well, great. Well, thanks so much, Scott. I really appreciate it um, and enjoyed the chat. So, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and leave us any feedback you have. <laughs>